0: My name is Lindsay Shea, and you are listening to Voxed. We are on episode three, and if you haven't already, stop and go listen to episode one first. We're telling the story in order, the story of Tony Walker, who was accused of murdering his girlfriend, Mary Sue Whitaker, in February of 1989. Now to pick up where we left off in the last episode, we talked about the lack of physical evidence to convict Tony Walker of murder. There was none. We talked about the faulty police work and the tests being done and not being recorded. We talked about the metal trace test that was done on Tony's hands and came back negative. We discussed the fingerprint test that may or may not have been done on the gun and how these tests were not told to anyone beforehand but came out in the trial. And we know what Tony says happened, and we also know that all the evidence seems to point towards what Tony says happened. Mary Sue suffered from psychological problems, as we discussed in episode one. She had attempted suicide prior to this. She had told friends that she would not live without Tony, and she had signed a suicide contract with her therapist. So, what did the prosecution build their story off of? with no physical evidence to tie Tony to the murder. So let's go back to the timing of this whole thing. The prosecution says that Tony shot Mary Sue sometime around 8.30 p.m. 8 to 9 was their general scope. Now, Tony says Mary Sue shot herself around 9.40 p.m. The timing of 8.30 p.m. from the prosecution was established by two witnesses at the trial. These two witnesses were Samuel Kimbrough, the desk clerk at the Motel 6, and Charles McCoy, a man from Texas who was staying in the room directly below room 229, where Tony and Mary Sue were staying at that night. Charles McCoy, who was staying at the hotel, said he arrived at his room around 7 p.m. He testified that sometime later he heard noise coming from the room above his. Randy Carroll, the prosecutor, sought to verify the time of the noise by relying on a TV show McCoy was said to be watching at the time. This was all going on. He was said to be watching Father Dally Mysteries, which aired from 8 to 9 p.m. McCoy said during this time he heard noise coming from the room above his, and it sounded like people were fighting or throwing furniture. He said the noise went on for 15 to 20 minutes, and then he called the front desk and asked the clerk to call the people in room 229 and asked them to quiet it down. McCoy testified that the noise he heard right before he dialed the front desk sounded like someone had picked the bed up and dropped it on the ceiling. Then he said he heard someone pacing back and forth. Kimbrough, who worked at the front desk at the motel, testified that he arrived to work around 8.30 p.m. and said that almost immediately after he arrived to work, he received a call from the guest who was staying below room 229 where Tony and Mary Sue were staying. The guest complained about the noise coming from the room above him. And Kimbrough then called room 229 and spoke to Tony, asking him to keep the noise down, to which Tony responded, OK. Well, if you go by the time of 8.30 p.m., since the clerk says it was almost immediately that he got the call with the noise complaint, then we have some problems. Tony had went to the ABC store and to a convenience store to pick up some snacks that night. And he had a receipt from the ABC store that was time-stamped for 8.27 p.m. The distance itself from the store is enough to discredit this time. And if McCoy heard the noise for 15 to 20 minutes before he called the front desk, then there's again no way it was around 8.30 p.m. Because Tony was at the ABC store at 8.27 p.m. Then he has to get back to the hotel and another 15 to 20 minutes pass by. So even with that, you'd have to say it was at least closer to after 9 p.m. The pacing back and forth that McCoy heard is questionable. The hotel room floors were concrete with carpet laid over top of the concrete. How could you possibly hear someone pacing? And Kimbrough himself was questioned by the defense on trial as to a discrepancy in the time. Kimbrough's time card at the hotel that night was brought out in trial and didn't show him clocking in until 10 p.m., So the defense asked him if he had complained to management for the difference in his pay, since he says he was actually there a lot earlier than what his time card said. Penny Black testified that in February of 1989, she was the manager of the Motel 6 on Greenhaven Road, and that the time card of Samuel Kimbrough showed that on the 10th of February, Kimbrough signed in at 10 p.m. That's a huge red flag. He says he got to work at 8.30 p.m. and it happened almost immediately when he got to work, but his time card says he didn't clock in until 10 p.m. Now, Tony says that during the trial, Charles McCoy, who was staying in the room below theirs, said that he was asleep at the time when all the noise was going on, but he woke up from it. And he says that McCoy testified that he did not wear a watch, but he knew what time it was. So, between these two witnesses is where the prosecution developed their timing of the shooting, which is not very reliable at all. The front desk clerk's time card not showing him arriving to work until much later is a major red flag. He actually arrived at work closer to the time that Tony says the shooting happened. Tony had an ABC store receipt for 8.27 p.m., which means he was out and about during this time. The man in the motel room being asleep and from out of town is also not a very dependable witness for the time aspect of all this. And why wasn't anyone else questioned? There were other people staying in the motel that night and no one else was questioned or asked for statements. They could have asked them if they heard any loud sounds that night. So the prosecution says he shot around 8.30 p.m., got a call from the front desk, didn't say anything about it, and then he cleaned up. So there was no evidence that Tony cleaned up anything. Like we talked about in the last episode, detectives did a luminol test in the bathroom and it came back negative. After this all happened that night, Tony called Jan Bruner, his wife's sister, asking to speak to his wife. He was said to have phoned her around 9.45 p.m. according to what Bruner had told Detective Ed Hill, which makes sense if that's when the shooting happened. And 911 was dialed at 9.44 p.m., he asked Jan if his wife Kathy was there. Jan told him no, and Tony asked her to please find his wife and inform Jan that he might be charged with murder because Mary Sue had just shot herself with his gun. The prosecution said that Tony was more concerned with the fact that he was possibly going to be charged with murder rather than the fact that Mary Sue was dead. The prosecution also said that Tony was more concerned about himself rather than Mary Sue when he didn't ask for help when the front desk clerk called his room that night. So, I mean, I feel like Tony was probably in shock. I mean, if someone killed themselves in front of you with your gun, what would you do? I don't even know. And when people go into a state of shock sometimes, they just panic and don't really know what to do. 911 was contacted at 9.44 p.m., which makes sense if Mary Sue shot herself around the time Tony says she did. But if not, it would mean Tony waited over an hour to call for help. Now, when paramedics did arrive that night at the motel, Mary Sue was still alive on the floor. Mary Sue was making attempts to breathe and was engaged in agonal respiration. They rolled her over on her back in an attempt to establish an open airway, and they very temporarily found a pulse. She ended up dying later at the hospital. So she would have had to live for an hour after she was shot if the prosecution story was true. Now, an autopsy of Mary Sue revealed that she died from a contact gunshot wound to her right temple. There was presence of an area of abrasion, an area of scorching, and gunpowder in the wound showed that at the moment the gun was fired, its muzzle was in contact with Mary Sue's skin. This type of force of the shot will typically cause the scalp around the entrance hole to be blown back and torn, a result which was found here. Dr. Deborah Radish, who performed the autopsy, said that a very high percentage of contact wounds are self-inflicted. The right temple is also one of the most common spots for a suicide wound. The autopsy also showed that the blood alcohol content of Mary Sue was equivalent to a .17 on the breathalyzer scale. With that blood alcohol content it's not unreasonable to think that someone who had contemplated suicide before and had attempted it would be more inclined to do so especially with the fact that Tony had said that he was going to go back with his wife. So could Mary Sue have lived for up to an hour after the shooting happened if the prosecution story was true? So there was a lot of disagreement among several physicians who testified at the trial to the probability that Mary Sue could have survived for as long as an hour after the shooting. Dr. Deborah Radish, who was the associate chief medical examiner for the state of North Carolina, performed the autopsy. And she said it was her opinion that Mary Sue would have most likely only lived five to ten minutes after the wound to the head. She said she couldn't rule out the possibility of her surviving for up to an hour, though. But she didn't think that Mary Sue would have lasted that long. Dr. George Pagorny of Moses H. Cone Memorial Hospital testified at trial that patients with wounds to their frontal brain lobes often survive for well over an hour. And he established that Mary Sue could have had the capacity to live until EMS got there at 9.52 p.m. if she was shot between 8 and 9. Now, Dr. Paige Hudson, professor of pathology at the East Carolina University School of Medicine, testified that pneumonia would have set in within an hour or two of a shooting such as Mary Sue's. But Mary Sue's autopsy revealed no pneumonia in her lungs. He said this indicated to him that it was a short time between the gunshot wound and the time that Mary Sue was dead. And the agonal breathing lasts only a matter of minutes. Hudson also said that a person who has threatened suicide before is at a considerably increased risk of suicide and repeated talk about suicide is a significant predictor of suicide. He said that 100% of single entrance contact wounds, which he had observed in his experience in front of the ear to the head, were self-inflicted and that in his opinion, Mary Sue's death was the result of a suicide. So, could Mary Sue have possibly lived for an hour after the gunshot to her head? Who knows? There was no common consensus. The autopsy did reveal that there were no defensive wounds on Mary Sue, which would show if she had fought back or tried to resist if she was getting shot. If the prosecution's story is right, Mary Sue would have had to lay there for almost an hour without dying. Now, when a person's intent in shooting him or herself is in the head, they do it in one of three places, the temple, forehead, or mouth. A suicidal gunshot wound in the temple is normally directed upward. Now, Dr. Paige Hudson stated under oath that in all his years of practice, he had never seen a homicide where the gunshot entry was in the location that was presented in this case. And Tony's story was actually featured in the Innocence magazine. And Arthur G.M. Larkin, M.D., also said that in his 30 years of practice, he'd never seen a homicidal gunshot wound directed upward at this location. So with so many holes and no glue to hold the story together, what did the prosecution do next? Stay tuned for the next episode.